Hello, Ruthie. Hey, Josephine. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Another another week into this crazy world we're living in. Oh, so crazy. Um, yeah. I don't even know what to say about it. Like, Has it just become normal now? Have we got, all got Stockholm Syndrome? Oh, that's so funny that you said because I just listened to an episode of, um, what's it called? Oh, crap. What's that podcast? Criminal? No. Oh, it's like What You Don't Know. Is it What You Don't Know? What's the one? Oh, I don't of? know. The podcast where the two journalists debunk myths. Oh, you're wrong about. You're wrong about. My new obsession. Yes. And there was an episode about Stockholm Syndrome and, yeah, that was interesting. Anyway, that was me getting off topic for a second. (sighs) Has much happened to you this week? Um, Well, I went back to work, not physically, but just um, emotionally. (laughs) I went back to work. Um, (laughs) That's about it. We did some trivia last night on Zoom with some friends. That's really all that happens to me. What was days. what was this last week uh, that we touched on last episode was the Sondheim 90th birthday concert was on. Oh, my gosh. That's actually the top of my page of things to talk about today. So incredible. I, I can't even. It was like song after song after song was just amazing. Amazing. I... Because I couldn't watch it live, like, you know, real time I was working, but you were live messaging me and then I eventually watched it. I actually made my husband watch it this morning um, when we woke up. We watched it in bed and it was just like magic and I think it's the best thing I've ever seen. It was just... I almost couldn't think of like better performers to sing the songs that they picked. And it wasn't like they were really obvious choices. They weren't. They were almost the opposite of obvious choices in most cases, yeah. you know. Like the first like couple, you, the first couple I was almost like, oh, that's a weird choice. I don't know. But then I realised that yeah. it was genius. And, you know, like would you pick lesson number eight from Sunday in the Park with George? <laughs> like genius. And then to sing it, for Mandy Patinkin to sing it, you know, in, in this next to a stream in a field a cappella, it was just, you know, you couldn't think of anything better. I know. There were some really obvious moments that everyone loved, you know, like Ladies Who Lunch and um, Bernadette Peters and Patti Lapone, obviously. But then there were some for me that just, like, for example, anything from Evening Primrose, when any of that cropped up, I just lost it. Um, I also, Every time there was an Evening Primrose song, I thought of you. <laughs> I wonder if anyone knows about Evening Primrose out there in the world. Um, yeah, I don't know. It was just beautiful. It was just really, really beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And I there kept, was that, um, that Jason Robert Brown concert we talked about was on as well. Oh, yeah, um, with the Ariana Grande. Which was great as well. Yeah, yeah. It's been I really quite a enjoyed week that. He always has amazing it has he always has amazing musicians play and yeah. you know it's almost like just seeing a jazz concert it's it's I mean there's obviously there's songs written for theater there but it's just like seeing amazing jazz musicians play yeah. and not even really about musical theater um at different times so well, he's so much yeah, more really about that as well tight musos isn't he like he's really just about that that sort of small ensemble music stuff like he's just yeah yeah definitely yeah. definitely definitely I um yeah. I don't know why, but because I was on YouTube this morning watching the Sondheim concert, and it suggested this Andrew Lloyd Webber concert to me. And at a yeah, that was hand, that was streaming free yes. this weekend. Well, that was a, like they've 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 released a different one every weekend. Yeah, well, it was just sort of weird because I was like, oh, 
well, I, I'm going to watch this. And then as soon as it started, I was like, oh, I've, I've seen this. I saw this like 15 yeah, yeah. years ago. What is this? As a, as a child, I watched this obsessively. Why yes. didn't I realise? <laughs> Why does Tina Arena <laughs> look so young? Um, yeah. And, and um, I just love there's that moment in this concert where Andrew Lowe Webber's brother was, is it Julian? Julian Lowe Webber gets up yeah, to play yeah, the cello. Yeah. He's just wearing like a polo shirt at the Royal Albert Hall. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> classic like muso kind of yeah, response to doesn't give a shit you know a really formal occasion yeah <laughs> wants to be comfortable playing yeah. a cello yeah uh, but I mean yeah to get back to the Sondheim concert I just um because I've now watched it twice I just like I appreciate so much more what what performers and particularly music theatre performers do like what and I've always appreciated Mm. it because I am one and I'm a long time supporter and lover but what we do is so important and it's so moving and universal and yeah I just I'm just so proud sort of to be part a part of it and you know an appreciator of it that yeah yeah 100% and I think that even if a lot of the people watching at home, like let's say that they were younger musical theatre fans or something like that and they didn't know a lot of the music, I still think that the performers were so good that it wouldn't have mattered, mm. you know, that they still would have found that really accessible just because the performers were so good mm. and what they were telling stories and, you know, we have beginning, middles and ends and that was really important. Yeah, I, I just think they delivered on that aspect of it really well. Yes. I think too that sometimes music just lends itself so nicely to isolation. Like he's he's not a big ensemble number composer, you know, so most of his pieces are solos and they're quite introspective and, you know, they're soliloquies really. So like it sort of lent itself really nicely, I thought, to the format. That's very true. I, I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that. Was there a, what was your standout? Oh, it has to be a tie between Mandy doing lesson number eight, Jake Gyllenhaal um, and Annalie doing move on and finishing the hat, which is a big deal mm. for me because I only listened to Mandy do finishing the hat, but it was pretty Yeah, good. Michael Cerveris' voice is it's just got such beautiful colour to it. I, yeah, it, really stunning, really stunning. I actually, I, I mean, it's funny you say that because I actually loved Raul doing Take Me to the World. I just, I think his voice is so beautiful and, you know, you're the Take Me to the World fan, not me, but I really loved his performance of that song. Yeah. It, um, it's funny because, yeah. I mean, you can get sort of caught up in, and there's not many recordings of Take Me to the World, but I think what he gave it is like he really sort of, I don't know, He it's like he lulled around in those notes and those beautiful intervals and just really made a meal out of just how prettily written that song is. Um, mm. Yeah, beautiful, it was beautiful, beautiful. But I, and I loved that he sang that, but I was just waiting for a bit more from company. I felt like there wasn't enough company in that show. That's very true. I guess, and I guess that just came from um, probably the fact that the Broadway revival had only just started previews when the shutdown happened. Yeah. So I'm sure that people felt like, oh, I can't pick a song from company when that's being performed, you know, like right now kind of thing. I I assume that's the reason anyway. Yeah, that's fair. I hadn't thought of that because I I just saw this huge gap of where's company, but yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And of course I felt the uh, lack of chromoleum as I pronounce it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
Anyway. <laughs> shall, uh, shall you tell me about one of your favourite musicals this week then? Yes, Ruth. I am going to tell you about one of my favourite musicals. Um, this is a bit of a surprise. I was actually talking to my mum yesterday. Uh, we were able to see adults sort of for the first time in a long time. So I saw my mum and dad and she asked me what my next musical was going to be. And when I told her this one, she was like, oh, really? Um, <laughs> so my choice today is Fiddler on the Roof, that amazing yes. classic. <laughs> um, this actually, the musical, or the, the reason it's on one of my it's one of my all-time favourites is I think it's actually the first musical I ever physically did. I'm almost certain of mm, that. And like been, that you were in, yes, that you performed in. That's right, that I performed in. So I'm racking my brains and I, like, I know I auditioned for a professional production of Les Mis when I was about eight um, and I didn't get in, obviously, because I'm here and I'm not on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> but then I had this huge gap where I didn't sort of do any performing um, on stage. And I think, yeah, I think Fiddler on the Roof was it. It was this production, this amateur production, um, in a hall, like locally to me. And I played the third sister, Harva. Um, and in this production, I was 13 and the next two sisters were both in their forties next to me. <laughs> like it was, it was such a bizarre production. And my little brother at the time. That's, <laughs> yeah. He, that's um, community theatre for you, oh, isn't it? It totally is. Like it's such community theatre. Um, and they, they couldn't find any male dancers. And my little brother like had just been hanging around cause he and I are quite close. So they just like, they grabbed him to be a male dancer and he would have been like 10, not a dancer at all. <laughs> But he was like a bottle dancer in this. And if you know the show, it's like quite oh it's like my a featured. God, yeah. uh, anyway, so I've actually performed. I've been in this show twice now. Um, I've played two different sisters and I just adore it. I absolutely adore this show. I love everything about it. I, I honestly, I can't find fault with it. Like it has all the ingredients of this like incredibly depressing, dark, staid, you know, musical of all things to make a musical about, but it, it just does. Like it's like, I, I think it's like much like setting a musical in the June Rebellion, setting a musical, you know, at the beginning of pogroms in Russia is probably not the most uplifting topic, but it just really works for me anyway. Mm. Um, music by Jerry Bock, lyrics by Sheldon Harnick and a book by Joseph Stein. Um, I'm actually not too familiar with their work prior to Fiddler. I know they, I know Bock and Harnick did quite a bit, but I'm just not really familiar with it. Um, not like I am with Fiddler anyway. I don't know. If yeah, you... it's, def- it's definitely the show of theirs that I know the most. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, um, the original Broadway production opened in 1964, so it's had like what it's it's over 50 years old. Um, it was the first run of a musical to surpass 3,000 performances. Right. Yeah, the very first one. So Fiddler, it held the record for the longest running Broadway musical for almost 10 years, but then Grease beat it out. Bloody mm. Grease. And such a different show as well like that's clearly that was clearly marked a different time in oh totally musical theater right I just, yeah i think if you ask someone what's the opposite of fiddler on the roof they would probably say grease yeah <laughs> <laughs> um it was it was a hugely successful run i think it wasn't until i started really researching 
um, for this episode how I didn't know how successful it really was. It just made like a ton of money. It won a bunch of awards, including uh, the Tony for Best Musical, Best Score, Best Book, Best Direction and Choreography for Jerome Robbins, Best Actor for Zero Mostel, Best mm. Costume Design, Best Supporting Actress for um, Maria Karnalova, who played Golda, like just so many, right. so many yeah. Tonys. Um and subsequent revivals have won a lot of awards too. So it's a critically acclaimed musical and for good reason, I think. Um, so a really brief plot, and I'm going to go super brief with this because I could go more intricate, but I won't. Basically, Tevya, our main character, he's a poor milkman. He lives with five daughters and a wife in this small, like traditional Russian village called Anatevka. Uh, the main plot points are really Tevya and his wife Golda trying to find matches for their three eldest daughters. Um, they're sort of of marriage age and they're, those three daughters sort of buck tradition. They're willful. Um, they choose their own matches. Um, and at the same time, there's sort of mounting violence and minor pogroms happening in the area, culminating in the villages of Anatevka having to leave, just being kicked out. That's the most simple explanation of the plot I could come up with. Yeah, um, yeah. Shenanigans in between all of that. I think for me, like there's a couple of sort of major moments that really mark the plot for me. One of them is this sort of beautiful growing love story between Tevya and Golda. Um, they've been married for 25 years and it was an arranged marriage and you sort of you sort of see this relationship really grow in a way that doesn't happen often, I think, for older relationships in musicals. They're not typically celebrated. Um, so that's a plot point I really love. But also just the constant analogy of the fiddler on the roof as this sort of metaphor for the uncertainty of life as a Russian Jew, you know, the, the tenuous nature of their existence and their living situation. And, yeah, it's... It's a, this beautiful ongoing metaphor throughout the musical that I just love. It's, um, it's set in what's called the Pale of Settlement, which some people may know, um, which is a part of Imperial Russia that it's like a Western region of Russia that now I think makes up, it's made up of like Poland and, and Ukraine and a couple of other areas. Right, right. Um, it basically is like an area that allowed for some type of Jewish residency at the time. So they sort of had these like specific areas that they could live in. Um, sometimes it was only temporary uh, a residency. Sometimes it was permanent. Um, but then sort of up until like I'd say the time when Fiddler on the Roof is set, which is 1905, up until then and slightly later, they then started to be disbanded and the residents just had to leave and go who knows where, like wherever they could. Mm. It's sort of like another of the great diasporas of um, the Jewish people. Um, yeah, which is a really, it's a really interesting setting obviously for a musical, but it's also I think one of the great pre-Holocaust Jewish stories. Um, yeah, yeah. We don't really have many mean. of them, you know. So I, th I think that's a good point to make because I, I really couldn't think of many, many Jewish contemporary stories that we have that are pre-Holocaust. So, yeah, yeah, very true. Yeah. Um, I think what I love about this musical is that I, it's still globally relevant. I think if, you, if you're a child with parents or if you have 
kids yourself or if you have ever been forced to leave your home or if you have ever been, um, you know, ostracized for the way you look or the way or what you believe or or the way you do things. And you'll you'll probably connect with this musical in some way. Um, mm. Yeah, which I think that a lot of people lose sight of that. They think of Fiddler as this, you know, this really un inaccessible is probably the word I'm looking for, this inaccessible <laughs> work, but I, I just don't think it is. Um, okay. I, yeah. I know compared to a lot of the, um, you know, classic golden age musicals, I actually think that if anything compared to a lot of others, it's more accessible because the story is so personal yeah. and not and not like – rooted in kind of I mean obviously it's rooted in tradi- literal traditions of the time yes. but it's literally just about a father and his daughters really yes. you know the family exactly and, yeah but also like in a way that and I'll, I'll probably ex- I'll expand more on this in a way that more traditional musicals don't like if we think about Rodgers and Hammerstein or some other older musicals this one is quite progressive in a surprising mm. way when you consider that you're talking about this turn of the century traditional Russian Jewish village, like it's quite progressive and liberal. And so it still stands really well today. Um, Productions. So production history, it actually did four months of tryouts in Detroit and Washington in um, 64 before it opened on Broadway. And apparently it got like terrible reviews when it first did its tryouts. But then once it got to Broadway and there were some changes made, nothing really significant. Once it got to Broadway, it just exploded. Like it was just so popular. Um, So yeah, it opened at the Imperial Theatre, which I've never been to. I'm sure you have. Oh, yeah. I have, yeah. The most recent revival of Les Mis was there. Correct. Uh, and uh, so was um, Natasha Pierre and the Great Comet of 1812. That was there as well. Oh, nice. So they, yeah. they have historical things going on. Well, at the moment, well, I mean, before COVID-19, there was um, Ain't Too Proud. Oh, yeah. Yep. Which is the Temptations. The temptations. Yeah, yeah. So uh, some interesting things about the productions. I didn't know this, but Bette Midler replaced the original Seitel, which is the oldest daughter, really early on in the original run, and that was sort of her first main role, like sort of mm, That's amazing. Yeah, I think she was 20, which is really cool, so mm. um, that would have been fun to see. It starred Zero Mostel, who um, had just come off A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum, Oh, amazing. Yeah, so he was a pretty big deal. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the whole the whole original production was just full of big deals. Like it was directed and choreographed by Jerome Robbins and Hal Prince produced it. Like it was really just a who's who of Broadway at the time. Yeah. Um, the original West End production opened in 67 and that starred Topol, who... That's right. Yeah, so he, who has now done it, what? Oh, my God. So, right, listen to this. He began playing Tevya in Tel Aviv just before this production in the West End when he was 31. So he was playing like a 50-something-year-old man when he was 31 and he stopped. Like the last production he did where he played Tevya was in 2009. He reckons oh. he reckons he's done the role more than 3,500 times. Oh, that's amazing. Which is that's just, really incredible. Right? It's so crazy. And if... If your only um, exposure to this musical is the film, Topol is um, in the film. Yeah. So he's the Tevye from the film. And the Tevye of my heart, like I, the first time I ever saw it was the film. 
and he's just the perfect Tevye, even though he was like, I think he was like f- not even 40 during the run, because the film was like in um, 71, I think. So he was a really young man, but they aged him and they put all this weight, like suits on him. Uh, but he was just perfect in it. Um, yeah. Again, I've never seen the film. Oh, what? It's, I know. It's terrible. I'm terrible. Oh, I think you would actually really love it. Yeah, I know. All these movie musicals, I've got to go back and watch them. And, like, if anything, they're more accessible than these live productions that I've totally. seen. But, yeah. Now, <laughs> just to get sidetracked briefly, is it true, because I think we've had this conversation, that you were only recently, like, a fan of this musical? You have never well, really... it wasn't so much that I didn't like it, but I had never seen... A professional production until the most recent Broadway revival when Danny Burstein um, played Tevya. Yeah. And I actually ended up seeing that production twice and just really spoke to me in a way that I wasn't expecting. Um, and yeah, it was beautiful. I cried both times. Um, it was just, yeah, really affecting yeah. as a show. And I just, I, I couldn't quite believe that this show written, you know, in the 60s, yeah. especially the themes at the time, I think, I think, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but was that about 2016, 2017 that that yeah, Broadway revival was? So yeah. I think Trump was president yeah. at the time and starting all these kind of anti-immigrant sentiments and and this sort of thing. And it, it, it was just insane how much it was mirroring mm. what was really happening in America at the time. And I couldn't... I couldn't imagine sitting in that audience as a as a Jewish person who lived in New York and really like feeling, you know, that yeah. oh God, could this actually happen again? You know, could this really happen in this world again God. that we sort of get, you know, removed in some way, forced to leave? You know, I think it's part of part of what makes me really sad about how enduring this musical is. Is that yeah, those those themes are they're still universal. Like it, it's it's really tragic that we can still talk about the world and say, well, yeah, this could happen. Um, that to me is pretty upsetting. But I actually think it is fundamentally a feminist work, um, which I think is part of why it's so enduring. And hear me out about this. I reckon, and I part of this, because I, I watched a documentary that you recommended to me actually that really touched on this, but... If you if you sort of break What's it down, what's the documentary called again? It's called um, Fiddler Miracle of Miracles. Oh, lovely! Yeah, and it's excellent. Um, so I highly recommend it. I think, yeah, I think it's a feminist work because if you break each of the female characters down, so there's the main characters are the three daughters of Tevya and his wife. Um, they are like very just incredibly strong women and they sort of throughout the whole musical are just campaigning really unapolo- unapologetically but not aggressively for their own happiness and mm. like in just a way that I think, wow, this is 1905. But then they sort of bring their their traditional father along with them for the ride who really just loves them and he becomes this feminist man really like yeah yeah that because the story itself is quite an old story it's it's quite phenomenal and I think like the original intention of the story as told by um Sheldon Harnick anyway was that like just to really buck the idea of matchmakers and and people not being able to choose who they want to spend their life with so it's quite it's quite progressive in that way the original intention and I think that's really captured in the musical so like um 
Sheldon Harnick spoke in this um, documentary that I watched about the fact that while they were writing Fiddler, it was really like the midst of the second wave of feminism and, like, Mm. the feminine mystique had just came, uh, just, like, been published the year before. So, like, you know, there were were riots in the streets. Like, it, it was... It was sort of the time to be really writing a female work and, and yeah. that's sort of what it is. Like, Still pretty amazing that it was written by a bunch of men, isn't oh, it? Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> let's not even start that. Of course that's problematic. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there was one woman on that like on that team or oh, no, no. I, 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 that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Yeah. yeah. So yes, good on them for writing a feminist work, which is great, but also, yeah, where were the women? Um, Interestingly too, I don't know um, in the production that you saw if they do this as often as they do in the film and other productions, but Tevye breaks the fourth wall really often. Yeah. Like just constantly. Yeah, a lot. yeah. And it's such a it's such a nice device. Like it's really mm. it's well executed in, you know, every time I've seen it. It's it was sort of groundbreaking at the time too, to really have a character talking to the audience all the time. Mm. Um, I actually love when a character breaks the fourth wall but without actual audience interaction. Oh, yes. You know, like I certainly don't want anyone speaking back uh, because maybe nothing is more annoying. But I do love when it's, yeah, when you you do feel that connection to the, to the character yeah. at the time, you know, in a way that you don't often get. That's right. It also sort of gives it this sense that, yeah, Tevya, Tevya I should say, is the main character, but also it makes him almost appear like an observer in this story as well. So you, mm. he isn't really the, as central, you know, as he's really telling the story about these other people rather than about himself. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I love that. Um, so the music is, obviously it's a musical, but it's one of the things I love the most about it. There's just so many excellent songs in this musical. Um like the opening sequence with the fiddle, dun, 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 it's a really recognisable yeah, like motif. It's beautiful. And then you've got things like tradition and sunrise, sunset and matchmaker and um, if I were a rich man and to life and the bottle dance and the dream. Like there's so many songs that I think everyone would know. Um, well, and rich man, I mean, is oh. sort of pervaded popular culture, hasn't it, in different ways? Well, I didn't realise how many covers there were. Like, this, yeah, this is so hilarious. bizarre. Um, there's there's a, like a video of the Temptations doing this really like Motowny cover of If I Were a Rich Man. It's really random, but quite charming. Um, it's it's really magnificent music and it's really bold and it's really brassy and like it's they've got these like soulful moments of this like beautiful clarinet particularly at the wedding um there's this beautiful scene with the bottle dance where the clarinet just takes center stage and it's this really just beautiful you feel it's like steeped in history because it's such an iconic sort of jewish sound mm. um but, I mean, you need, like, a proper clarinetist to play it because um, it's quite tough. But then then you've got, like, these really heavy percussive sections in tradition, like with big timpanis and tambourines, and it's, like, it's like a really, like, a raucous sort of party. You get this sense of, like, a celebration all the time that's happening in the musical. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, my favourite song, actually, is The Dream, which is really oh yeah yeah (laughs) so there's a right in the middle of the musical basically um Tevi's oldest daughter Seitel Seitel it's like a tz like czar but um 
she decides she doesn't want to marry the person that the that the matchmaker has found for her. She wants to marry her like childhood sweetheart model, the tailor. So she convinces her father that he needs to break this agreement with um, the guy the matchmaker's found for her. And he doesn't know how to tell his wife about it. So he decides to make up this dream. So yeah. it's, it's always beautifully staged because they're in bed, you know, like they've got their nightcap and gowns on and suddenly he wakes up and he wakes his wife up and, and you know, like he's just as if he's just had a nightmare and she sort of comforts him by saying like, well, if you tell me what happened in the dream, I'll tell you what it meant and let's, you know, we'll work through it together. So then there's this amazing scene of he had this dream about her dead grandmother and then this awful this awful female spectre comes up and and haunts him and it's, you know, the butcher's ex of dead wife or whatever and yeah. It's just such a it's almost like this really tongue in cheek take on the dream ballet, on the idea of a yeah. dream ballet. <laughs> Love that. Yeah, yeah, like, you know, it's it's not like Oklahoma where it's like a serious dream ballet. This is a real, like a, a very funny, yeah, sarcastic dream ballet that I, I just love it. But um, I think... Yeah, the moments of levity uh, in this show in some quite serious subject matter, I think, are handled incredibly well. Yes, right? Like it could be such a dark, dark show. Yeah. But it's just not. Like it doesn't sit in that space for very long at all. Um, I think because the characters are so like prosaic and yeah. Anyway. Um, if you're looking for a gateway song, if you haven't, if you don't know Fiddler on the Roof and you're looking for a way to get into it, I reckon, I reckon if I were a rich man is the gateway song. Mm. I just think cause it's so joyful, but it's got those like iconic, um, sort of ostinatos, like the way that the music moves, it's quite chromatic. Like it, it's, it's just got sort of everything that the show is in one song, I think. Yeah. I don't, do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, it's God, it's so hard to pick with that yeah. show. I think, um, the, yeah, literally so many just I- iconic songs. Yeah. I mean, yeah, Tradition is just... It's such a good song. You know, Ugh. such a enduring kind of, yeah. Yeah. Um, sorry, I know I've, I've talked about this so long. I actually could have, I could have spoken about Fiddler forever. So I'll, just, <laughs> I'll give you some quick fun facts and then you can tell me your favourite musical. Um I found this interesting. Uh, the name and the inspiration for the set design came from like quite a famous Marc Chagall um, painting titled The Fiddler. And if you Google it, it's quite a recognisable painting. Um, right. Yeah, it's like this uh, a man, a fiddler, who's sort of like standing on top of these tiny little houses, but he's sort of floating between the two and he, he looks quite precarious up there. And the whole metaphor is like Jewish life is like being a fiddler on the roof, like you might fall off or, you know, you're trying to trying to just do your thing, but you're in a really precarious situation. Um, so that was really cool. And I thought you would appreciate this fact. Stephen Sondheim was the one who, con- who convinced Jerome Robbins to... Um, joined the production as director and choreographer. Wow. Yeah, he um, and Jerome Robbins obviously came up with that, like, amazing, iconic tradition choreography, you know, with the arms up and in the circles. And so he was pretty important. Um, and this is interesting. It The show has been mounted in Japan 1,300 times. Oh, I love it when certain countries just love certain shows oh. for seemingly no reason. It's, it, uh, it seems so strange to me. Like I, I don't know what musical I thought would be really popular in Japan, but it wasn't Fiddler on the Roof. But this is like yeah. it's like one of the most 
enduring musicals in Japan, apparently. Incredible. <laughs> Incredible. Um, this is cute too. Sunrise Sunset is it's a, obviously a really famous song and it's really commonly sung at weddings. Yeah. But um, in 2011, Harnick wrote new lyrics for same-sex weddings for this song, um, which is oh, really beautiful. nice. Yeah. Um, Oh, one thing I didn't know, which probably if you're a musical theatre fan out there, you're shaking your head at me. I didn't realise how much of a douchebag Jerome Robbins really was. Oh, right. Yeah, that's that's um, that's pretty famous. Yeah. Well, I figured as I was watching this documentary, I was like, oh, this whole time I thought he was just another lovely figure on Broadway. But, man, he, like, was sort of universally hated. Um, yeah. And I didn't know any of the stuff about. I mean, about, it, it, admired. But- well, Yeah. Feared, I guess, yeah. Feared and duck man, some cool people had awful things to say about him. But um, yeah. I also didn't know about the um, the House Committee on Un-American Activities. Yeah. Thing. So he, Jerome Robbins, uh, he is he was a gay man, and um, but he was also suspected of communist activity and sympathies. So he was actually called to testify before the um, the, the House Committee on Un-American Activities, which was you know basically like chasing out um, communists at the time. And he actually did testify, and he ratted out like quite a few people, his colleagues. Mm. Um, I think, and they say now that he'd been threatened sort of to, that he would be outed if he didn't um, testify. So he was probably in a really, really tough situation, but that caused a lot of tension. Like I know on the original, um, in the original sort of cast, Zero Mostel really despised him for that. Mm. So there was a lot of tension there, um, which I just found really interesting. Like, yeah. Yeah. Can you imagine? I mean, it would just be... The most awful. Awful, awful, awful. Yeah, so, and I, I suppose too, like, you've got a cast that is probably, probably has quite a few Jewish people in it. And when you're yeah, talking about sure. communists, like, that's such an inflammatory, you know, topic. And yeah, anyway, it, it, just a different time, just a totally different time. 100%. So, 100%. yeah, look, I've got so many other things to say about Fiddler, but I might just start a blog or something. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the uh, that production that they did off-Broadway um, in Yiddish was is still at this stage supposed to premiere in Australia later this year. That would be um, so good. Of course, we don't know what's going to happen uh, with COVID-19, if it will or not, but I really hope it does. Um, it was really beautiful. Um, I saw it in New York last year and yeah again obviously don't speak Yiddish um but it's presented with both English and Russian um subtitles and it was it was a really beautiful beautiful Mm. production I've only watched sort of clips of it on YouTube and it yeah it was really beautiful like it just felt like a really um raw sort of production like it it meant it really meant something to everyone who was performing it yeah Uh, so I really liked that um yeah Fiddler Man, it's just it's just awesome. Ten out of mm. ten. Yeah. Love it. Awesome. So Ruth, Thank you. that's me. That's Fiddler. What have you got for us today? So uh, the one of my favourite musicals that I have chosen to talk to you about this week is the musical Waitress. Oh, oh I forgot you were doing this. <laughs> so uh, this is by far the most recent of my favourite shows, I would say. Um it is a show that, you know, I've talked to people who have 
similar taste in musicals to me and often like the same things. And I would say with a lot of my favourite musicals, I can say objectively why I think that they're an excellent show. And I mean, I think I can say that with this show, but I would also say that of all my favourite shows, I probably have the strongest emotional connection to it that whilst I can understand someone not liking this show, it doesn't bother me because I have a love for it that kind of isn't about anyone else. It's not about that I think the music is so good or that objectively it's such a good show. I just think I have quite an emotional connection to it. Mm. Um, And I think that, yeah, I mean, I've talked to people who are like, I just kept talking about butter and flour and it wasn't for me and, and, and just really had the opposite reaction of me. I've really spoken to some people who didn't enjoy their experience of it. And I, that's fine. That's their experience. But for me, it, it really spoke to me in a way that uh, I think as a woman, as lots of different things, I really loved about it that a lot of musicals just don't. And do you think? Yeah. So that's essentially why I've picked it. Do you think it's a musical that you have to see? Because I haven't seen it and I don't really have, I don't really care for it in many ways. Um. I, I think that you will have a different appreciation of it once you've seen it, mm-hmm. definitely. Yeah. Um, but I do think that I do think that the music is probably a good gateway into it. So, like, if you don't like the music, I don't think you're going to suddenly like the music mm-hmm. once you've seen it. Personally, that's my opinion. Well, I like I really enjoy the music because I I really love Sarah Barella, so I love the music, most of the music. But I just feel like eh, the rest of it is so vanilla. Like, mm-hmm. so. I'll go back a bit. Um, for those who don't know, it's based on a film, 2007 film, also called Waitress. Uh, and what's sort of awful but also kind of uh, wonderful in the way that it um, got turned into the musical was it was written by this woman called Adrian Shelley who also played Do- the character of Dawn in the film. And it's just a really tragic story where essentially she was killed Basically, a random um, person killed her. It was they think it might have been a bit of a misunderstanding where he was uh, working on the building that she lived in, and there was a noise complaint, and maybe that he she, he was worried she was going to report him um, as being an illegal immigrant, and and it, it ended up, but it was essentially a random killing, and so she died before um, she even got to find out that the film had made it into Sundance you know, sort of tragically. So the film had been accepted, but she didn't know yet. And so it, it, was, it did very well at Sundance. It got a, a limited release. And, um, like, I remember seeing it at the cinema mm. here in Australia yeah, um, back then. Like, it had a, you know, worldwide release. And so, yeah, so unfortunately she never got to see that. She left behind a husband and a um, daughter who was only a few years old at the time. Like, just really <sighs> tragic awful, story. Awful, awful, awful. And so uh, that's the film. It's based on that film. And... Uh, Basically, the story is about a woman named Jenna and it's about her and the people that she works with at uh, a pie diner called Joe's Pie Diner. She's sort of stuck in this small town. She's in an abusive marriage with this man named Earl and basically she finds out she's pregnant with his baby and it's a baby that she doesn't want. She doesn't want to be pregnant with his baby, but she also wants to keep it. She doesn't want to get rid of it. And she ends up having an affair and sort of finding love with her OBGYN um, who's called Dr. Pomada. And in this process, she sort of learns that she can love, that she's capable of it, that actually, you know, this marriage isn't, 
you know, all that life is. Um, and she sort of becomes determined to win this pie contest and there's money involved in winning the pie contest. And if she wins this money, then that's enough money that she can start a new life with her new baby and she can leave her abusive husband. Uh, unfortunately, her her husband Earl finds the sort of cash she'd been putting away to, like, go to the contest and compete and so she's not able to do that. Um, but once she has the baby, it kind of gives her the strength to kick him out and, uh, you know, uh, in the end actually Joe, the man who owns the pie diner, leaves her uh, the diner and, like, in his will kind of thing and um, she names it for Lulu, who's her new baby daughter. Uh, so that's essentially the story. It, obviously it also, like, it's about the people who work, the other women who work in the diner with her and their own relationships. That's a big part of the story as well. Uh, the show opened on Broadway on April 24th, 2016. It closed just in January of this year. Um, oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, just closed in January. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, I know. Um, and it started in London in February last year in 2019 at the Adelphi Theatre and it's was supposed to close in June, but unfortunately due to COVID-19, when all the shows shut down in March, it's now not going, they know it's not going to reopen. So unfortunately, um, finished in March. It was nominated for four Tonys, the original um, Broadway production, but unfortunately didn't win any. However, it was the same year that Hamilton opened. So they basically won everything that they were nominated for that year. So it wasn't really like, I don't think that was such a shock to them necessarily uh, because, yeah, obviously Hamilton just cleaned up that year. Mm. I, and in a way it's a bit of a shame that it opened the same year mm. as a show like Hamilton. Uh, and there's lots of different – I mean, what I love is that even though it's such a recent show, there's actually quite a few different recordings you can listen to in the sense that there is that original Broadway cast recording, but before – they released the Broadway cast recording. So Sarah Bareilles, obviously like Grammy, Grammy winner, big pop star Sarah Bareilles wrote the score. She released an album called What's Inside, Songs Songs with Waitress, which was her kind of, hey, here's the songs I've written for Waitress. These are my versions of them as if they were my own songs that I was releasing on an album. And, and they are, they're quite different arrangements and everything from the, from the Broadway cast recording. Um, and so she released that first. And then in the meantime, she's also released kind of like a small EP that's called What's Not Inside, which is like cut songs and demos and things like that um, of, of songs that, you know, didn't make it into the show and, and her original demos from, from, from some of the songs. So there's, there's lots out there to listen to, especially considering it's such a recent show. So I encourage everyone to do that. Um, and what I would say, one of the things I really like about it, aside from the fact that it's about just really sort of strong female characters, like lots of great female characters in the show that you don't always get to see in Broadway musicals, you know, with their own songs and their own storylines and everything like that. But also, uh, you know, she has this affair with Dr. Pomida, but she doesn't end up with him at the end. And I love that. I just, I love yeah. that so much. I, I, I know a lot. Of, I think, I, I think some people watch it and go, oh, but I, I just really wanted them to end up together. And it's like, yeah, you're not getting your, you know, yeah, your quote unquote ending. Hollywood ending, mm. but you're getting like a realistic, you know, just because, just because they don't end up together doesn't mean he wasn't important in her life and didn't teach her things yeah. and that that relationship wasn't still you know, strong for them both. 
And I also think it shows um, like infidelity in quite a human way mm. as well. Uh, he goes back to his wife. That 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 seems to be, you know, we don't know that for sure that they end up together, but that seems to be the implication. And same with one of the other waitresses, Becky and Cal, the um, the sort of cook at the diner, are having an affair. And it's it's just spoken about in quite sort of non-traditional human terms about actually what goes on in people's relationships and things that you really don't see mm. on stage. I mean, you know, I, I guess you might see it in film sometimes, but certainly not in a Broadway musical. Mm. So I really appreciate that element of it as well. I think it doesn't like it does a good job of not demonizing female sexuality as well. Like it's really just I, I agree. Like yes. for her not to end up with with Dr. Pomodor at the end, you just think, well yeah, like she's allowed to have a sexual relationship that doesn't necessarily end in a happily ever after. She's allowed to do and, that. And also that her self-actualization has nothing to do with the men in her life. Correct. Uh, and you know, it's very much like yes, I I got what I needed to from these relationships, but I can, you know, I can be happy on my own. I can be, that, that's really what she learns mm. in the process. Um, one of the, one of the big things when this show was due to open on Broadway, which it's kind of insane when you think about it, but it was the first ever Broadway show to have an all female creative team. Um, so uh, technically there'd been a couple where it was either one person was like, songwriter, book writer, director, and choreographer that happened in the seventies, um, with runaways, uh, and there was, I think, another case where it was like two people were sort of all four of these roles. But this was the first time where it was literally four different w- women, you know, fulfilled all these roles. And in fact, even when you expand that further, like the musical director was also a woman. Like you, if you kept expanding it, there was sort of um, so many women involved, which I just think was so wonderful and also kind of insane that that, that hasn't that happened. That was a first. Yeah. It was uh, my understanding is it was also a first on the West End. Oh my god! When it opened there, you know, it's just embarrassing <laughs> that you're not talking about. It is. This, it's not the '90s or anything. This is like a couple of years ago. Exactly. Like I know Diane Paulus, who directed it, is often she's been nominated for quite a few different Tonys over the years, and almost always she's the only female nominee, but not just that for best director, not just that she's often the only female director with a new musical on Broadway that season. That's really common. Jeez. So we're still (laughs) in such early days of, of women in those roles on Broadway and in musical theatre. We're just still at the beginning. Yeah. When Fun Home won best score a few years ago, that was the first time it was an all female um, composing team that had won best score. Oh my God. And that was like 2017. (laughs) I mean, luckily since then we've had like, we've had Hades Town now, which is good. Yeah. But yeah, it's not enough. Not enough. Not enough. Um, one of the things that's really quite wonderful and I, I love any time a show really wants to bring the sense of the show into the audience. So they have um, a real pie baking um, sort of just outside the the orchestra doors uh, before every show and they, they did all these things to get the exact smell right so that when you walk in there's that smell of like pie baking and they did things like they upped the – it's not a pie you would necessarily want to eat. Like they upped the cinnamon content. They, they looked at the exact perfect recipe that would smell perfect as people were coming in and so that it's still – it's there at the beginning, it's there at interval, you know, it's um, – That's cool. And then they, ha- they have a professional pie consultant that works 
works on the show, which is just quite amazing. How do you get that job? Because I would like that job. I know, right? <laughs> well, I think they might be a professional baker to start oh, with. Oh, God. There's always something. <laughs> <laughs> There's always something. There's always something. And they also sold kind of like mini pies in jars, like it beforehand and at interval, um, you know, cool. uh, instead of like ice creams in the theatre. They had these sort of mini mini apple pies and things. Mm. Uh, they also use real ingredients on stage. Uh, so, like, it's uh, it's flour and eggs. Everything's real. Like, they're really making dough at different times. So, and does that mean that as a celiac I would not be able to be in a production of Waitress? So, so fascinatingly, one of the Jenners was also a celiac, oh. and so she requested that, um, that they change to gluten-free flour. <laughs> and after that, they kept using it be- just in case. So Smart. my understanding is right to the end, they use gluten-free flour from like the third Jenner onwards. <laughs> there you go. The last impediment to me playing Jenner on Broadway is yeah. gone. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, uh, the, so Sarah Bareilles, you know, who wrote the score, she actually started dating her um, partner. His name's Joe Tippett. He's, an, he's the actor who played Earl when it was out of town in Massachusetts um, uh, when it did the production at the American Repertory Theatre before it came to Broadway. So he played Earl in that production. And I think he later replaced one of the Earls on Broadway and did it there as well. But, yeah, she met him doing that and they've been together ever since, which I think is really cute. Oh, that's cute. Yeah. And... Uh, also, the at one point during the Broadway run, the the character of Joe, who owns the pie diner, who's this older man, uh, became Josie, and then the actress June Squibb played her. Um, so yeah, they just changed pronouns where necessary in the story, and I I think in some of the songs instead of man, they changed it to ma'am um, in some of the songs, and yeah, so it was a female instead. June Squibb, um, Squibb, sorry, she oh, that's a really familiar name. Yeah, she's I mean she's a very well known actress. Um, what do I know? That her does from? lots of theater and um, has been in several films. I think she's an Oscar nominee, if not an Oscar winner. Um, but yeah. Oh yeah, I know. And one of the other. Yep. Do you, do you know where you know her from? Yeah, I'm just looking at her. She was in Sen of a Woman and The Age of Innocence, and she was in Mickey yeah, and Joe yeah. Black. Yeah, she's like yeah, okay. pretty epic. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, Jessie Nelson, who wrote the book of the musical, and she's talked a lot about how she really wanted to honor Adrian Shelley. She felt like Adrian's words were very much her bible in terms of writing um, the the script and the book, and it was like that was always what she referred back to. Like Adrian Shelley was there with her. It was, she felt like it was a collaborative process, even though Adrian wasn't obviously physically able to be there and, and write it with her, but she's quite a successful screenwriter and um, screen director in her own right. Like she wrote and directed the, the movie, I am Sam, you know, the Beatles um, with all the Beatles music in it. Oh, Sean Penn Sean was Penn in and, um, Dakota Fanning. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which is obviously a very successful film and quite a few other sort of late nineties, early two thousands screenplays that you would have heard of and, and seen definitely. Um, I, I think she did a really beautiful job on the book of this. And uh, so, you know, Sarah Brellis had released this sort of her version of the album um, and on it, on a couple of the songs, she had uh, uh, the pop singer Jason Mraz sort of play Dr. Pomodar uh, on two of the songs and she took over after Jessie Mueller, who played the original Jenna, she took over as Jenna, which is, I always love, like, if someone gets to 
be in their own show, mm. you know, that they've written. That's I think that's always quite a special thing. Um, so she ended up doing it quite a few times during the Broadway run, sort of stepping in for like a month or so in between different Jenners. Cool. And then one of the times they had Jason Mraz make his Broadway debut and play Dr. Pomodar. So they were sort of both on that co- kind of concept sort of album together and also played it on Broadway together. Did you happen to is, say that? Because I know I did not. Got I'm afraid and I'm a massive Jason Mraz yeah, fan. Yeah, you've got so such a hard uh, on for him. Yeah. That was um, <laughs> that was a real shame that I didn't get to see him do that. Yeah. Um, and one of the other things I love about the show is that the band the band is on stage sort of most of the time. What I've seen sort of happen in some Broadway sets recently, which I really love, is that often the band is on some sort of platform that can be kind of on stage or moved off stage as necessary. Um, and they sort of do that with this show or, or, you know, they can bring in a fly line and they're not seen. Um, but in this case, the, the band's on stage. It's quite small. It's only a six person band and the musical director plays piano and also sings like a lot of the backup like harmonies and things with the ensemble. Oh, that's cool. I like that. Yeah, which you don't see very often either. No. Um, I really enjoyed that. And the band are often like uh, like customers at the diner. Like they'll get up from where they were sitting, you know, playing guitar or whatever and go and sit in the diner booths and they're just kind of in the diner chatting away, which I, I just love. I tell you that. Sort of little things like that. I feel really bad for like modern day Broadway musicians because I think like you can't just sit in a pit anymore. The expectations. <laughs> no, just, that's right. You're just getting crazy. Like calm down. Yeah. <laughs> it's very true, very true. So um, a couple of things I want to talk about with this. One is this whole concept of like pop stars writing musicals, right, is sort of – I wouldn't say it's a new thing. I'm sh- it's, it's happened over many decades. Um, but what I wanted to talk about is that, in my opinion, Sarah Brellis is in many ways the most successful at this – And part of it, I think, is that she was a theatre kid. Like, she's been very clear that she grew up doing community theatre. She loved musicals when she was a child and and as an adult as well. And so that was really in her DNA. And so I think that that very much helped that she already probably spoke the language that is needed to write, you know, a a piece of musical theatre. But also I think that they made some really clever decisions about the way that the ensemble works as an ensemble. Um... And I say clever because I think it worked for this show. I don't think it would work for every show, but obviously most of the time in musical theatre when you have an ensemble, they are, you know, as a group, singing as one, representing one thought of a of a mass collective. And that that concept of an ensemble doesn't really exist in this show. The ensemble sort of, they're more, it's more almost like backing vocals for a moment or they're representing movement or they're very, really actually playing characters and singing um, as those characters, as background characters. And I think that actually writing for characters to sing as one thought, you know, like, welcome to our town, you know, here's how this town works, sort of traditional opening number in a musical. That type of song is incredibly difficult to write if you're used to writing for one voice and one thought process and things like that. And I actually think that, say, in Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark, for example, right, when Bono and the Edge (laughs) wrote for that show many years ago, ill-fated musical, I remember, you know, watching it and seeing it and listening to it and Actually, some of the songs they wrote just for Peter Parker were great. You know, these like big angsty rock songs, 
they were fine because that is kind of the language that they know how to use already. Yeah. But writing for a mass group, you know, doing something, I mean, that is so out of the realm of what they do mm-hmm. as part of their sort of normal jobs. And again, I, it's sort of like Sarah Bareilles didn't have to do that. And they, and instead the show has worked around what her particular strengths were. My understanding is that she had quite a bit of experience with acapella music as well in college. And she was a judge on that acapella singing show, um, the sing off. And so that kind of, uh, influences the way that the music is written as well. Yeah. Um, I hadn't actually a lot of ever the sort of ensemble stuff. I never considered that point, but when I think about like my favorite Broadway composers, there's definitely like a clear sort of divide between those who are very good at writing ensemble songs and those who just mm. aren't. Like it's not yeah. their skill set. I, I think it's such a specific skill mm. that even some quite successful Broadway composers don't necessarily have and just have managed to avoid yep. those numbers or those are the numbers that we skip over, yeah. you know, when we listen to the, well, I mean, listen to the cast recordings. Think about Sondheim. What are his famous ensemble pieces, really? Like he's got Sunday. Yeah, I mean, Sunday is pretty beautiful. <laughs> absolutely stunning. But he's not like, you know, he's not a writer for multiple voices on, on mass. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean... In the case of Sondheim, I'm going to say it's probably more to do with the type of musical scene because I yes. love all the Sweeney. I don't know. I think I think that's probably more a case of him liking writing for singular yes. voices and maybe the shows that he's – I mean, all the ensemble stuff in Into the Woods I think is beautiful. Well, I would never, um, I would never say that it's not part of his skill set because I think he could do yeah. anything he wanted. <laughs> Yeah. And I do think obviously that it's, it was a trend that existed in the golden age Mm. and therefore people probably forced themselves to write for those. And it was also a time when bigger casts were in music, you know, it's all those things Mm. as well. Um, But yeah, I just think that she very successfully bridged this gap between sort of popular commercial singer songwriter and musical theater composer because it sort of worked to her strengths in the case of this show, that in a lot of other cases of, you know, like lots of them haven't succeeded. I mean, Kinky Boots is probably a good example of it succeeding um, in terms of obviously that was a very successful show and Cindy Lauper, you know, wrote the music to that show. Um, but, you know, Sting wrote The Last Ship. That didn't do well on Broadway. There's been lots and lots over the years. El- Elton John has done it quite successfully in different ways. You know, there are people who've broken through. Um, they do tend to be more sort of th- people who write theatrical songs, I think, in their own, mm. you know, successful commercial careers as well. Uh, but, yeah, that that was sort of one of the things I think about a lot with this show as the reason I think it's, it's, it is successful um, and, ha- and her as a composer has done a successful job. Mm. Yeah. Um, the other thing is that... Yeah, obviously we all we see is movie movies being adapted into musicals nowadays. That's a really common, you know, people want things that are based on existing um, brands and you know all that sort of thing. It's like we're not um, willing to 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 fully immerse ourselves in something completely new. Like we're so. Well, I think I think the problem is that a, your typical audience member might not be. Yeah. It's not just about producers not being willing to take risks. I think there's probably data to show that people are much more willing to go to something if it's if it's based on something that they can yeah. hook into in some way. Yeah. Um, unless it's already popular for whatever reason, then, then they are just, oh, no. But if I've seen this film and I loved this film, well, I want to see this adaptation. Yeah. You know, this adaptation. Um, or, you know, in the case of a jukebox musical, well, I love that band, so I'll go and see, you know. And... But what I think has worked, when when those movie musicals have been successful, they've tended to be lesser-known movies. 
um, you know, like it's not waitress was it was it, it you know it actually made quite a bit of money for its budget it was a very low budget film but it wasn't a huge blockbuster film no. you know and so i think that, that again something like kinky boots is another good example the band's visit that was on broadway a few years ago uh these are all shows that the movies although exist and maybe a cult favorites in different ways aren't mm. huge everyone knows them movies and i i do think that that has tended to lend itself better to a stage adaptation so than- are you saying that like we won't see shawshank the musical anytime soon because <laughs> that makes me sad <laughs> that's that's yours to write i think <laughs> oh i will take that challenge yeah <laughs> Yeah, so, but I mean, you know, something like Pretty Woman um, last year and, uh, yeah, again, again, another example of, like, Brian Adams, you know, writing the the music for that. Yeah. It's, it, yeah, in both cases, I just think the fact that it was such a big film, the fact that his language was maybe not um I wonder if that's quite, also what happened with, um, like, Dirty Dancing and, and a couple of those, like, not hugely successful musical adaptations on the stage. Well, Sidebar, Dirty Dancing, the thing I've always found fascinating about Dirty Dancing is that they never say Dirty Dancing the Musical. You'll notice whenever they advertise it, it's not Dirty Dancing the Musical. It's Dirty Dancing, the classic story on stage, right? Oh. Because it's not a it's not a musical. It's literally like a live show adaptation of the film and people who the people who sing in it aren't the lead characters. It's like people in a nightclub. Like it, it doesn't it, – it all happens uh, – diegetically am I saying that correctly Um, it all happens within the world of Dirty Dancing it's not someone stepping stepping out and singing their thoughts soliloquizing to the audience it's it's always within the world of Dirty Dancing um, that the person is singing (sighs) and yeah I've always found that fascinating about how that successful that has been considering it's not it, yeah, it's and bad. no one really picks up it's on that. So bad. It's just the movie on stage. It's literally just the movie on stage. Ugh. Which, it, but you know what, Josephine? If there's an audience for that, mm. then by all means. I mean, if those actors are getting work because people just want to see that film live on stage, I'm all for it. I, I mean, I still want to see original, amazing mm. stuff get produced, but I. I don't hold it against producers putting on a show like that oh, if there's no. an audience like, for it. Like totally not, and I'm I'm not a purist in that way. Like put on anything. Like I love a pantomime. Go nuts. I really don't yeah. care, but I also just hate it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and then in terms of like some gateway songs, uh, for me, I do think that the ballads in the show are probably my favourite music in the show and, and a good entrance points just because I think there's some such beautiful beautifully written pieces so she used to be mine which josephine sings the shit out of by the way um just incredible (laughs) uh she sings it incredibly well it's a beautiful song it's the first song sarah brellis wrote for the show and that um yeah i just think that that's a really sort of um quite amazing 11 o'clock number Mm. that is there you know i really do think that's quite a beautiful um moment in the show um you Matter to Me, which is sort of the big love duet uh, between Jenna and Dr. Pomodar. The only thing, my only uh, thing I will say is please listen to the Sarah Bareilles, Jason Mraz version of You Matter to Me, because although I think that um, Drew Gelling, who played the original Dr. Pomodar, is incredible, he, um, Jason Mraz's falsetto. And I talked about falsetto for like half the episode last week. I don't care. I'm talking about it again now. Uh, Jason Mraz's falsetto is 
so beautiful and gorgeous and pristine crystal yeah it's pristine pristine uh so i will say listen to that version of it Mm. uh it's just such a beautiful song and then i would say something like bad idea is a good kind of like it gives you an introduction into like the sort of comedy elements of some of the songs as well see i would swap out bad idea for um when he sees me the, oh yeah, which I just love. The Dawn song. song, yeah, yeah, yeah. That is a great song. That's a great song. Yeah. Um, and then the only other point I sort of really wanted to make is I I ended up seeing this show about five times. Um, like I'm a bit obsessed. Um, just because it's like everyone brought different things to the role, and I'd want to see you know, oh, this person's playing Jenna, or this person's playing Doctor Pomeroy, or you know. Uh, so. Um, the funny thing was uh, on one of my work trips last year, I saw it. It had just opened in London, so I thought I would go see it in London. And then Shoshana Bean was playing Jenna in New York, so I also was going to see it in New York. So I happened to see the show twice within about a week of each other um, on in these two different continents. And and I picked up a couple of things. that You don't normally get that very specific. It's such a specific, like, set of circumstances to happen of seeing a musical like that. Such privilege. But, <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things, um, a couple of things I picked up, one was so um, uh, Catherine McPhee played uh, Jenna. She was the original Jenna in London and she would played it on Broadway already. And, you know, I think that she's, people might know her from Smash um, and different things. She was on American Idol, I think, originally. And basically she has a stunning voice, don't get me wrong. I mean, she has a really beautiful gift of her voice, but to me, her acting was not as deep as maybe Jesse some of the other Jenna's mm. I'd seen. And I still appreci- I appreciated the performance at the time. I hadn't seen the show in a while and I, I really enjoyed it. Seeing it a week later with someone like Shoshana Bean, who is such a good actress and just the way she can emote through music is really quite astounding. It was like seeing a different show. And I... I think, again, it's one of those cases where if you saw the wrong person in this role or this role or this role, I maybe get why you didn't enjoy it so much. Whereas if you see one of these incredible people who can really sort of emote and, you know, bring story to their singing, it's like a completely different show. And, yeah, it just really highlighted that for me. It's interesting because I think at the time. I reckon if, if I were in that situation, it would have been the opposite because I find Shoshana being so distracting like her voice is I I don't know like too many runs and and it's like the quality of it is just it almost doesn't fit on a stage like it I find her yeah so I'll tell you I'll tell you a funny story about that so my husband Andrew is has a very similar opinion to you in terms of his normal impression of her as a as a performer and so he actually saw it I think there was a performance just as we got there to New York that trip and it was her it was a different person playing Jenna and Tushana was starting that following week and so he saw it before she started because he was concerned that he would have the same worry as you about the, um, the way she and he really loved the show it's one of his favorites as well and he loved it so much that when we were going the following week he thought well I want to see it again um like I just really want to see this musical again and I was like oh but what if what if you have this really opposite reaction to her performance and he saw it again and he preferred it so much more with Shoshana Bean in it and and to be honest she didn't she I mean she she did runs that aren't in the in the score or the way that Jesse Mueller used to do them but they were not out of place they were always based in character 
character. They weren't about her just showing off vocally or anything like that. It was always based in character. And, and yeah, honestly, and I think that her performance was, she was a better actress than the original person he'd seen do the role. And that again was everything Mm. to, to, you know, to that role. Yeah. I always, like, I almost feel like I don't have a, a, a right to have an opinion about her because I've never seen her live. Like I've only ever listened to her voice and I find her voice to be like, well, you're just like, it's like this Adina Manzilli sort of show off, like I don't care for it. So Vocal gymnastics. Yeah, sort of. yeah. And I, I think because I haven't seen her live in action, I can't fully appreciate what you're talking about. Mm. But, um, and also, of course, it's very different when someone performs. Of course. You know, obviously a lot of her solo stuff is kind of R&B based, mm. um, you know, that sort of thing. So... Yeah, that was what was quite surprising to me is actually like in a role. Of course, I mean, this is, I mean, that's her job as an actress, right? But she's there to serve the text. Mm. But I I guess sometimes we assume that people are going to be like they are just every day, you know? That's right. But of course, like she wouldn't wouldn't be cast in that role if she was trash, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, there was, um, but yeah, so that was just my impressions from that. But yeah, waitress, love it. Love the score. I hope you get to see it. I hope it comes. I mean, again, it was planned to come to Australia soon. I really hope it still comes. Uh, I really want you to see it. Yeah, I auditioned. a gorgeous show. I've cried every time. I had an audition for it. Um, (laughs) And that's that. That's the end of that story. (laughs) (laughs) Josephine, you're so much drier than a lot of people realise. But, uh, yeah, Josephine really would have been an incredible Jenna, so she should have gotten the role. I just wish, uh, you know, you had a couple of reality shows behind you that someone might cast you in something. That's right. Look, but apparently I've got a face for podcasts, so it's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, dear. Yeah. So what's happening this week? Anything good? Not much, right? Not much. Just, uh, Just more of the same. We can see two adults in our houses now. Woo! Maybe we'll record together in person soon. <gasps> Imagine. And maybe then Wouldn't we won't be have like a different world. endless uh, tech problems then. <laughs> <laughs> of course not. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think we should um, also thank uh, my husband, Andrew, who's our sound engineer, hey. who also composed the, um, the theme music to the show. Yes. Gosh, he's clever. He's so clever. So clever. So clever. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, uh, thanks for telling me about Fiddler on the Roof, Josephine. That's all right. I will, I will tell anyone who listens about Fiddler on the Roof. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, this has been my favourite musical. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Ruthie. Thanks for Waitress. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Uh, Have a great week. Yeah, I'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.